Okay, here's a little bonus for you. If you are a regular listener to Deep Focus, you know, I've been re-airing past episodes of Deep Focus and putting them up usually in three pieces. Um, They usually go up Tuesday morning, Thursday morning, Saturday morning, and a three-hour show. This week, there's an added feature. This is it. It's an interview we're going to play in a moment of an interview that I did, I conducted with Milford Graves with Andy Rotman. Andy and I were co-directors of the Jazz Department at WKCR in the summer of 1987. And Andy, welcome to Deep Focus. Thank you, Mitch. So you do remember me. And you remember that once upon a time, you were a programmer at WKCR. I remember all these things. I remember working with you and Charles Blass, kind of creating this Albert Eiler broadcast, which would be more than a day straight of Eiler's music and struggling to find all the recordings that we would play and all the people that we would interview. And I very much remember getting ready to interview Milford Graves with you and not and being out of our league. That was yeah. my first thought was yeah. like, we're really doing this thing and we're college students and these folks are musical heroes. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And uh, added to that too. So yeah, we this was an, uh, an Albert Eiler birthday broadcast, July 13th, 1987. Um, and you and I were both big fans of Albert Eilers. And I seem to recall that at that time he was kind of off the radar for a lot of people. Uh, this is before the internet when you could find people who are interested in the same things you were interested in. And there wasn't a ton of scholarship that had been done. Most of the records were pretty much entirely out of print. ESP was out of print. Impulse was out of print. Um, CDs were just starting to become available, I think, uh, at least for us. And it was it was hard to find out anything, really. It was a it was a tough pull, and I think we had about uh, I think we had I think we had a twenty four hour um, preemption set aside for this, and I think we had maybe twenty four hours, if that, of Albert Eiler's music, but. I remember, am, am, I, am I about right so far? I think that's right. Maybe it was 24, 27 hours. Somewhere what I need to do is find the poster that you designed, <laughs> which I have in my closet. I'll have to dredge it out. And you can kind of post that kind of on your kind of website because I think it's really well done. Um, I, but now I just, remember making that poster. You came to me. I was on the air. You told me how to make a poster. If I remember this correctly, I think I just took an album cover and I just drew on it with white out and I think that was the poster it looks great but <laughs> and then we xeroxed it we xeroxed it ourselves well this is what I remember is that at the time no one was listening to Albert Eiler um this was there was no revival there was nothing there was just obscurity uh the records weren't there um there were no CDs there wasn't stuff on the internet this was just just really wasn't there and being very WKCR-ish at the time you find someone that no one else is listening to, and then you decide to put on a festival for 24 plus hours about that person and do all the research you possibly can. Uh, 
play all the music in chronological or some other order, get together all the interviews, do special, you know, like broadcasts and all that. Um, so I remember a lot of work going into it. And it was for me of being a kind of proto researcher and relying on so much of the wisdom at WKCR of like you and Phil and Cliff, everybody. Um, and then making those flyers and postering the city. Yeah. Drive like going all over the city to poster it, to kind of to listen to this, which was not something that people did a lot of, but we were invested in getting this kind of music out there. And in addition to doing that, deciding to interview people uh, to learn more about it. And it was obviously Ronald Shannon Jackson. Um, that, that was, a, yeah, I interviewed Shannon and he was, he was great. He, Shannon did not generally speak effusively about other artists, including ones that he had worked with. Big exception was Albert Eiler, who Shannon was still enthralled with. And uh, he he put it all out there in that interview. And I remember you doing a really terrific interview with Don Cherry. Yeah, in the Buick, in that old <laughs> car, uh, outside of the knitting factory, in the car, like after the last set. He's like, yeah, I'm free at three in the morning. I'm like, great, we'll just sit in the car and do the interview there. Um, so it was such a great learning experience. And, you know, I think at that time to get that chance to interview Milford, who was a kind of mythological figure yeah. at that time. Yeah. Uh, there yeah. weren't that many recordings. I think of that, uh, you know, I had a vinyl copy of Baby uh, that album with, you know, Arthur Doyle. And, but it wasn't someone like that we kind of knew a lot about. I knew he was, you know, an educator and he, you know, he was almost like, a, he was in my mind, a kind of sh shamanic like figure, a musician, but so much more. And I remember going into this being really intimidated but also so excited that we were really going to do this festival and kind of fueled on a kind of adrenaline and I think collegiate naivete about what you can actually accomplish. And I remember being really glad that I was going in there with you because if I were doing it by myself, I would have, I think I would have been a little stunned into silence. I, um, I feel like we didn't have much opportunity to, prep for this i feel like either it happened last minute or um it got sprung on us somehow i remember him coming into the station and he was very warm and open i think any anxiety that you or i might have had about doing that was pretty quickly alleviated by him he was just so uh forthright and open and enthusiastic and certainly didn't treat us like the naive kids that we might feel in hindsight that we were. I mean, what's amazing is now that I know that he was also, you know, a college professor, he probably had no illusions about what we were. They're like, <laughs> yeah. these are college students. I know college students. I know what they know. And nevertheless, I felt like he treated us kind of with kind of respect and dignity. But what was so nice, and this is, I mean, again, I have not listened to the interview since, but he really changed the way I listened to music by what he said. Um, I briefly mentioned to you this before, and you're like, no, no, save it for the interview. <laughs> yeah. But now I'm going, but I remember him talking about, about Albert Eiler's physicality, particularly, I remember there's the word thorax in it. Yeah. And I'd never thought of aligning a musician with his physical or her physical body. And 
that really changed it for me. I mean, I began to listen to music in a different way to think about the physicality of artists and what they bring to their music. The way like Shannon Jackson has a certain kind of physicality that's different from Milford or different than Beaver Harris or these other people who had played with Albert. Um, and the way he spoke about it so eloquently uh, at the time, or I, should, I don't even know if it was eloquent, but it totally, it worked for me. It worked for me that I still remember that moment now, uh, all these years later. And I, it was a profound insight. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And um, all these years, which I realized it occurred to me from July of 87 to now when we're recording this in 2021, that as of this past September, that's a third of a century. How's that sit with you? That's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long time. But yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think I have not listened to this interview either. And I'm kind of amazed that any of it stays with me. But I think I remember him talking about the volume of air that Albert was capable of moving through the horn, that it was just uh, astonishing thing to be around, even for other musicians. And... Uh, his capacity for that. I also remember him saying something that surprised me at the time, and maybe he wouldn't so much now, but um, that he was very cognizant of playing for the audience and wanted to give them something they could hang on to. That it was, uh, it was in that sense, you know, there's an entertainer part of what he did in his mind. I think he said something about that. All right. Shall, shall we, shall we listen to where we were at? So 33 and a like, half years is, ago. So, <laughs> so I don't know if that's actually the, I don't know when the festival was, but I know that that's when we interviewed him. But I imagine, when do you think the festival was? Do we I know? think it was on the birthday. The interview was July 13th, they said, which was the birthday. I kind of vaguely remember it being live, live. I think he came in on the day of the birthday of the broadcast. So should we listen to this? Thing? Yeah, man. All right. Andy Rotman here with us. And this is me and Andy interviewing Milford Graves, July 13th, 1987, the birthday anniversary of Albert Eiler. Our current guest in the studio, drummer Milford Graves. And uh, also here with Andy Rotman, my name is Mitch Goldman, and uh, we've had, um, saying a bit earlier, that we we're very fortunate to have uh, a number of the important musicians, contributors to Albert Eiler's music, particularly drummers here, to uh, help enlighten us on what kind of person Albert Eiler was and what contributed to his music. Um, clearly, there was a great innovation and new approach in his playing. And um, rhythm's obviously a key part of that. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, um, well, this recording to begin with, about what we've been listening to, Love Cry, and then uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, Albert's concept and uh, rhythm fitting into that and the other things that uh, you learned from him and the way that you knew him. 
Wow, that's a mouthful. Oh, that's a okay. <laughs> Tell us about uh, Ghosts and Love Cry and Omega, which we just heard. Well, every time I listen to that record, I try to uh, listen to the gong that I played on there. And it seems that it's missing. And uh, they reduced this gigantic gong that I use to like a finger symbol. <laughs> seemed like that was kind of disturbing to the, uh, I guess, the technology that they was using at that time. Was that uh, a limitation of the recording or... Uh, an intent of the producers, or do you think? Um... Well, I don't. I think I think it could have been a a, a, a technical problem, or either the uh, the quality of the uh, recording recording equipment that was being used. Because uh, when I go to Japan, being that uh, you know in the, in Asia that uh, the gong means something, and people are used to recording gongs, that I never encountered. A, a problem like this in, in, in Japan, percussion-wise, but here it seemed to always be a problem. Uh, but th this session, uh, before I, I guess I can really say anything about this session, is a statement I had to make before this, is that um, uh, a lot of people talk about Albert's tone, they talk about his volume, uh, and they talk about uh, intensity level, in a sense. Well, when Albert and uh, myself, when we played together, uh, it was a release for me because uh, I had played with other horn players who either just directly told me or I just picked up on uh, the fact that I could not be able to really uh, uh, play with any kind of, I mean, really intensity level. This is the same old story about drummers, you know? Well, you know, you play too loud. Well, not all drummers, even to the extent you project a, yeah. a radiance, an energy that, uh, you know, it, I'd imagine it must have been hard to find a foil for that. Yeah, but Albert, it was, it was no problem with that. And so uh, this was brought into the studio, the recording studio, <laughs> which the intensity level was so high that you can't even imagine, the, uh, to, uh, you can't even imagine what it was if you listen to the record. If you listen to this record, everything seems to be back and listening, mellowed it out and... You know, but that was a, an extremely highly intense, you know, fiery session. And, uh, and that whole studio was just filled up with sound. I mean, it was popping in there. And it was popping to the extent that after we'd do a, a take and we would come back into the uh, uh, recording booth, there was dis a discussion in there with the producer and engineer <laughs> about the intensity level, what they're going to have to do to calm everything down. Oh, they couldn't... Uh... Oh, they couldn't deal with it. You know, I guess, I guess the recording needle and uh, whatever else, the tape, and I guess everything, uh, all the indicators was popping all over the place. Were uh, these sessions recorded in a similar way to uh, his others? When, when I hear this, I hear separate tunes, and usually when... Uh, in the other, especially the live recordings with Albert, it's from one tune to another to another with Albert giving the cues for the band to follow. No, this year we had to spend some time because we had to readjust a lot of the petitions. And, and as I said a few minutes ago, each take had to be reviewed and balanced and had to be changed around. So you couldn't go straight through on this. Did uh, So were there then uh, overdubs and... Uh, retakes of things as well i imagine that uh, uh i think albert's voice could have been overdubbed if i'm not mistaken on one of those i think they had he had to overdub the voice but other than that i i don't remember if anything else was overdubbed if it was it had to be it's probably on albert's part did he i'm curious also about i think a lot of people i've been speaking to uh, 
listeners are noticing how melodic Albert I was playing was. And I think it takes people by surprise because of his reputation for being such a, an out player, whatever you want to call it. Um, how did... Do you have any idea of how he came up with the themes? I mean, did he uh, develop something over a period of time? Would you hear him working on a melody and it would become a composition, or did they just come out of no place? Or uh, One time, Albert and, uh, told me that uh, he was in uh, f uh, France, and he was playing. And this guy in the first row jumped up and ran to the stage and saluted him. And Albert was just saying this and saying that and such and such and such and saying. And I said, I said, now what is Albert saying? I, 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 didn't, I didn't catch it at first. Then I realized this, one of his tunes is the French National Anthem. And Albert said, hey, I, I'd go there and, you know, like I'd play the French National Anthem. I know the people like this and like that. Albert was uh, very conscious of, like, uh, uh, doing tunes that people can recognize. And he would try to take the tune a little bit above, just as someone said earlier about Albert maybe possibly being, I guess, a great folk artist like that. Well, personally, I don't think you see anything wrong with being a great folk artist, you know. <laughs> I think if we all Absolutely. think about more about being folks or folk, then maybe we'll have a better world if we don't try to separate ourselves. And so, uh, so I, that doesn't bother me at all. You know, Albert was definitely a great folk. Albert could have did many things. And... Um, Albert was just very conscious, I mean, you know, of, of people trying to do something. Albert was always humming. As long as when I was with him, he was always humming. And like Joseph and Logan was like that. These are the two guys that always be humming. And then they say, listen, listen, I got something, I got something. Listen to this tune. I'll be on the train and I'll be just sitting there and you don't know he's humming, but you got to listen to him because he'd be very quiet. And all of a sudden, he'll come out real loud, and he'll start singing the song to you. He said, this is one. We got to do this one. And that was my experience. I don't know if anyone else had that experience with Albert. Um, but, um, you know, the, the catchy tune thing, you know, I mean, he wanted people to be able, he wanted people to be able to catch on. I really, I really, you know, maybe Albert had, maybe Albert had a plan. Maybe Albert wanted to let the world catch on to something very basic. And after they got the fundamentals, Albert would elaborate on those fundamentals, <laughs> you know? So what would Albert be doing today if he was still alive? I really don't know. But uh, I think it could have been a, a, it could have been a possibility, let's put it like this here. He had the capabilities of taking it way beyond the point of what people think that he was able to do. And Albert came to my house one time when I was living in Brooklyn, and I, and I was living in East New York section of Brooklyn, and I was in those old houses, apartment houses in East New York. And Albert came to my house, and I had heard about Albert's reputation. And uh, he came into my room, and he looked at my room, which was like a matchbox, a little small room. And he looked at the walls, and Albert took out this rag, and he stuffed his horn. I said, what are you doing that for? He says, I don't want to crack your walls. <laughs> and I had heard Albert had this reputation for cracking walls, and I believe he would have cracked those walls. Literally, they would. That's just, right. They would shatter. Yeah, but when Albert when Albert played that when Albert played in there, it was a different kind of Albert Isla. He said he was very humble, very respectful because he was in my apartment, but his playing was totally different. You see, so Albert can do more than these little catchy, folky melodies that people thought of played various national anthems. 
How do you mean? I mean, do you, do you think uh, that he was because well, he had, he had something no else going on? It wasn't right. just screaming. Mm -hmm. He had another kind of thing going on, you know. But you wouldn't. You would sell him. You would sell him here. That un unfortunately, most of the uh, uh, things that could really show another aspect of Albert not playing little catchy melodies or not just screaming, and it's like something else that it wasn't in between that. But it was another kind of aspect of Albert that was talking about something else. Uh, unfortunately. I don't know if anyone has that on tape. Are there any recordings that you know of that really, well, for instance, we were, uh, you were talking about some of the shortcomings in Love Cry, that the drums aren't quite right, and some of the other recordings of the sound is just, yeah. um, you know, all wrong. But are, do you think there's any that really can give somebody who uh, didn't have the chance to hear him live a feel for what it was like to hear him play, to capture that sound? Well, if 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 you have if you, if you have a little bit of vibrancy about yourself and you can and you can feel what he's doing and and then just relax yourself and maybe go through a little meditation and just let your mind just move out, then I think you will see what he was really about. It was in there, but it was very subtle. But actually, on the surface, just to listen to any of his recordings and really see another aspect of Albert other than trying to deal with uh, like uh, what was happening uh, 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 on this planet, in a sense, what he thought he should be doing. I don't know if, if there's anything that I know of on, that's on recording, because I've, I've, I play with Albert on occasions that was not like for recording dates or was more intimate. It wasn't like clubs uh, that something else took place. And, uh, and uh, I haven't had a chance to talk to Charles Tyler in years, but I think Charles will remember one time, it must have been about 1966, we did something in the Black Arts Theater in Harlem, and Henry Grimes was on bass, and I remember Charles Tyler was there. I, I'm not too sure if Miss Starfield was playing uh, bass clarinet, but um, uh, I think Don was there. But anyway, that night, was something else that took place up there. I mean, we all looked at each other, something else took place, <laughs> but I wasn't recorded. <laughs> it was a total different thing. So, you know, it, it, uh, as a matter of fact, we uh, did the Buffalo Arts Festival in the 60s. And we took a plane from New York, and we were supposed to be going to Buffalo. And uh, it's, it was a heavy storm that year. And so we had to land in Rochester. So we circled in the air about an hour. And uh, I remember uh, uh, one of the people, could have been Cobbs, he, he's, he said, I smell smoke, I smell smoke. And the time we smelled the smoke, someone, this, uh, the, the, the airline people came around and told us to fill out this card. And we said, uh-oh, the plane must be going down. And uh, so, uh, so one of the, some, somebody put out a cigar, you know, and to one of the uh, ashtrays, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, so anyway, we had went through all this emotional trauma <laughs> up in the sky. So finally, we landed in Rochester. We had to take a two-hour car ride back to Buffalo. Everybody was waiting for the concert, and we got to the concert, we went and we did this thing. And uh, Don read some poetry, and we played, and it was supposed to be showed on Channel 13. And it was not showed on Channel 13, they showed Cecil Taylor's segment. And they said something about, uh, we don't think this should be on channel, we don't think this should be on television. We can never figure out why. Anyway, we went through a whole lot of hassle, and. I had to call up Channel 13 and go through a little thing with their legal department about being paid because I told them, look, you guys had some real hot spotlights on us. You, 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 you spent a lot of time trying to get us to coordinate ourselves on that stage. We was late. So uh, anyway, 
you know, they financially took care of us for that single day. They never showed our thing on TV, and they said it was too strong. And uh, that was something else. That performance was something else, but they didn't want it on TV. <laughs> so it's out there somewhere. It was that very, I mean, that, because, I mean, there was so much going on that we had to go deep down inside because of the, the airplane trip. You know, you're up in the airplane, and you think this thing's going to come down. <laughs> and it was just a courtesy type of card that we was filling out to apologize. Right. We got it two weeks later in the mail, they apologized, but we didn't know. We thought it was something going to notify our nearest kids. Oh, so we went through that, then this ride back getting there, and we hit that stage, it was like, zoop. It was like, and another time, we played the Evolution of Jazz Night in Newport. This was 1967, and I had to speak to Ira Gittler about this, because Ira Gittler and Dan Morgan Stern co-authored a review on that, on, and for, for Downbeat. And they stated that when we played, we sound like a Salvation Army band high off of LSD. <laughs> and the people walked out. Now, I'll tell you the story on that. We followed the MJQ. MJQ followed an all-star group with Max Roach, um, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, and uh, Milt Jackson. I think it was James Moody. I mean, that was a power night. Olutunji opened it up because it's supposed to be from Africa to the present day. So Albert was supposed to be the avant-garde coming over from Africa. You had the blues on there. I mean, you had everybody. The program was an hour and a half late when we got on. It was supposed to end something like uh, 11. We went on 12.30 and it started to rain. People started to getting up and walking out before we came on the stage. And I remember we looked, we said, let's get out on the stage. Hey, look, we waited all this time. We don't want to play for no empty house. You know, at that time, 65, you know, we supposed to be avant-garde. This was the opportunity to play before a large audience that, of, of, you know, traditional listening type of people. So anyway, like, it must have been about a third of the front. The people were leaving out. We went on that stage and... Albert went out first. I followed Albert, and I can't remember who came after us. But anyway, we went out there, and we burned. And the people was running back into place. I mean, they were running back in. All those people that was leaving was running back in there, and we burned that night, and we burned, and we burned, and we burned, and it was over. You should see how many people came behind stage. To my knowledge, no one was coming behind stage for no other band that night there. I'm not saying so much that, you know, we were so much better than the other band, but I'm saying but the, the spirit and the feeling we put in that music that night. What do you want to call it? Avant-garde? I don't care what you want to call it. What notes we played, that was beyond the point. It was the feeling that we played with that we wanted those people to come back in, and those people came back in, and then you got these two guys co-authored an article saying that we sound like a band Salvation on Van Hoff, and the people walked out. When, they, when, I, when I spoke to Eric Gittler, I hope he's listening because I'm going to always remind you about this, that he, you blamed it on Dan Morgenstern, and I have never asked Dan Morgenstern to verify that. <laughs> you see, so these, uh, these, these were times, I hope I'm not putting the station in a, a little tough hey, thing here. But, but anyway, um, uh, these were things that uh, maybe, maybe Newport, they used to record everything. Maybe you should ask George Wheat if he has a recording of that, mm -hmm. because um, that uh, that that music. I mean, it was it was just interesting. I mean, it was just pure feeling. I mean, that's what I think people 
misunderstand. You don't don't listen just so much Albert's melody or if he screamed or if he was able to hit, as some people say, that low A. And it's a question of if he's really hitting a low A, if he's hitting something else, and they heard a, 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 a overtone that may could have been a lower A, but what was lower than that A they heard? You see, that that's not the point. The point is, it was just that, it was just that, as they say, the spirit or the feeling in his music. And I don't see why some people get so upset when they hear the word spirit. You know, some people get, I, I think, too academic. I mean, I've been in academia for the last 15 years now. And it doesn't bother me enough to be, you know, worrying about various technicalities. If I can write music or if I can analyze this, if I can play chord changes, if I can play in 4-4 four, four, or whatever else. I think that the bottom line is regardless of what you do, you have to have some so-called soul. You know, you have to be able to stimulate people so as they can really tune in from that inner, inner self. And the, the, the thing with Albert, I mean, if you really look up the, the, the fundamental meaning of spirit, you will see to breathe or win. And that's what Albert was about. Albert was the breath man, you see. And it, it, it's, 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 uh, so, some people use the word that Albert had tone and Albert had volume. Albert had both. You see, tone quality. Just in that tone, his tone quality was tremendous because of the, the kind of breath that he would put into the horn allowed him to get a specific type of tone quality as well as the volume. Uh, the main thing I noticed about Albert, and his brother was like that, darn, powerful sound. But the Albert brothers had a very different anatomy about them. How's Their that? thorax was enormously large. They had an, an enormous thorax. They pro their lungs were probably twice the size of the average person. If you ever can get a good picture of Albert, you see this guy at his height, and even Don was taller, but you would notice that their, their chest was enormous. They were naturals. So if anybody wants to be inspired by Albert's volume and try to get his volume, hey, it's more than technicalities there. These guys, was, it was a gift. God gave them the gift. They have an enormous thorax to be able to, their, 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 their volume capacity is insofar as O2, oxygen, or air intake was enormous. I personally feel that's why Albert was able to get that kind of volume. Him and his brother, too. They were, the two Albert, Albert brothers were noted for that. And Don on the trumpet with him on it, they were powerhouses. I mean, these two guys were powerhouses. And that's, that's the one thing. I, somebody else had noticed that, too. You see, look at those guys, look at their, look at their chest, man. These guys got <laughs> enormous. Who ever seen a guy like these size of chest like that, man? How tall were they? They were tall, too, then. Well, I, Don, Don had to be about six feet, six one, maybe, even just a little over me, you know, around like that. But Albert was shorter. Especially Albert. You see this short guy, you know, and, and he's this big, powerful-looking chest when he played, you know? But So Albert, you know, I mean, you know, the breath, he was the breath man. So he's spirit man. It, it had nothing to, to do with mysticism or, 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 or trying to be a, imaginary figures or intangible or non-materialistic beings. You know, I mean, Albert was definitely a spirit man. <laughs> In literally. Yeah, he was a spirit man. He's a breath man. So it, it had to be uh, just a physical sensation to be on the bandstand with him or in the audience even. Um, I mean, that's something that you would feel. In, yeah, you're in your bones. You yeah. feel that. Well, I'll tell you. Uh, I know this is I know this is a, a, a Albert's program, but 
experience-wise, I would say two two very sensitive experiences I've had with musicians. I've had all kinds of sensitive experience with all the musicians I played with, but there were, were two people, and I, I say these specific people because uh, Albert has left us, but he hasn't really left us. You know, I mean, physically he's 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 left us. And, and Josephy Logan, Josephy Logan, I don't know where Josephy Logan is, but these were two musicians that they had touched on something. And they and they and they were they were they were reaching for forces out here that were very delicate forces, and 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 these forces, I mean, you you got to have somebody around here when you deal with certain kind of forces like that. And I've seen both of them, you know, in a sense, like get so involved with these forces that other things took them over. And I, I, I the, the thing I, I think is is, is uh, one of the sad things about something like both of them, especially you know, um, just because this album show we talk about Albert, is that sometimes you get so much into the intangible and spiritual you forget about planet Earth, and there are beings walking around planet Earth that will take advantage of you. And I think the sad part about say like in this country, people don't recognize certain kind of creative forces that we have, and we just let them go. We don't deal with them. And uh, Albert had gotten to a thing that, like, was like, uh, was was very fragile, very very fragile. He was trying to work on that, and I think that's one of the ways I think we hit it because when we played, it got it got it got very you couldn't touch it. It got away from just grabbing onto it, you know. It wasn't in that kind of form, you know. And like uh, Archie, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> It's about academics, you know, um, like I understand what Archie's saying. I understand what a lot of people saying. I think I do, but I, I don't think it's fair to try to say that maybe Albert didn't have certain kind of academics, maybe like other people, because it's beyond that. I mean, a academics is just the beginning. Then you leave that. You don't want to hold on to that, you know, and Albert understood that. It's just like certain people don't think I have certain kind of academics, you know, to deal with certain things. But I know where Albert's academics are coming from, you know. And uh, Albert showed you a little bit on here. You're talking about chops, basically. Yeah, chops. Like... Well, you know, I'm crushing Albert's chops now. I don't know. I'm not going his chops. But you know, his... I, I think if you're going to classify him and check, maybe say on the focus thing, I think it's a way if you're going to orchestrate your music in a certain kind of way and if you're going to sit down and, and spend hours and hours and hours and hours and try to figure out neat little kind of patternized ways to do this and do that, you know, intricate chord changes and so on and so on. If you want to talk about if that's academics, then, you know, that's another thing. I think we can deal with academics until they become non-functional. You know, I mean, medicine's like that. We got all kind of academics in medicine, you understand, but we got a lot of incurable diseases around. We got elaborate machineries, we got elaborate chemical techniques and everything else. And someone can come along with a very low folk remedy and cure you. You see, so you know, you just can't talk about that. You know, then we get beyond the point. What works, we got to deal with. You see, and a lot of academics don't work. See, that's so. That's just a, that's just a part. That's just academics is just an extraction from the total. See, when we get to the total, we find out we get very simple again, and that's what Albert recognized. And if it called for something a little bit above just the little more simplified thing, then Albert was ready to handle that. And that was my experience. That certain things we did, I saw that. If you wanted to go there, I was ready to go with you. And what did he, um, how else did this manifest itself? Would, would he verbalize on it and, and say, I'm wondering if you could be a little more specific about how 
he would make this known to you or someone who knew him personally? Or was it st strictly took place musically? Well, you musically, musically, you know, sometimes, you, you know, you know, you know, you know, you, you know, musically, you know, certain things that happen. You know, musicians know, you know, when you take it someplace and somebody can go with you. Either they can go with you, they can't go with you, you know. But there was little, little, little small things that, that, that Albert would say, you know, um, that, would, that would let you know. Um, but in the end, from other sources and what I detected Albert, Albert was depressed in the end. You know, he was, he was, he was very depressed. And that was because of the business deals that he had with Impulse. Albert had entered into contractual agreements and his life was going to be kind of like dictated in a certain kind of way of how he should play and what he should play. And I think he was faced, he was faced with that, that he realized that he made maybe some, some specific errors. That's what I was saying before, that you have to realize the earth element that's involved. You know, you can't get too far away and you, if you're going to deal with earth people because they're going to always be there to try to manipulate you in some kind of way. And, um, but, um, I mean, he was totally aware. Albert was totally aware, but you had to listen to Albert because Albert had a, a way of talking uh, very subtle at times, and he would talk quick. He'd be saying something, and he would like insert something, and you had to be quick to pick it up because he'd go someplace else. Do you think then, uh, well, some of the last recordings that he made, do you think they were a compromise or getting back to what you were saying a little bit earlier, uh, an effort for him to bring his craft to a broader audience? Um, do you think that, was it something that he was backed into? It's, that sounds like an implication of what you're saying. Well, well, from, from everything that I've heard and reports that I've gotten from, you know, people that supposedly knew what was happening, it was that that, uh, that was not something that certain things Albert didn't really want to do. Maybe on the surface he was talking, and he was saying that he wanted to do this, but from all the information I received, it was something that he definitely was, you know, it was on paper. It was on paper that, you know, that certain things that should be done like this, it should be done like that. Another um, apparent implication from what you're saying, uh, tell me if I'm wrong, is that uh, he may have, you believe that he contributed to his own death, which has remained mysterious. Uh, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount that. You know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't discount that. I don't think Albert was you know I don't I don't think Albert was afraid of death. Maybe in a certain sense, but I don't think besides I don't think he was really afraid of death. I mean, we don't want to die. That's not saying he's saying well I'm going to go out and uh, that's it. You know, but I don't think he was afraid. I've heard so many rumors about that Albert was killed and then this and that. You know, but I don't know if anybody's come up with any substantial evidence to verify that this this certain things took place. But uh, in uh, speaking with somebody uh, who is supposedly a, a reliable source that did some investigation um, into um, into Albert's death, they said that they uh, did see a, a, a copy of the uh, coroner's report, and that there was no mention of foul play or anything on there. Now, whether something took place in the coroner's office, that's a that's another thing. But uh, insofar as this is supposedly a, a you know a, a certified copy from the coroner's office uh, that there was no mention. They couldn't find any marks on his body of nothing. And uh, it was just ruled as a cause of death just by drowning. So I think that, I mean, if people really want to find out, then they should challenge that. I mean, someone said, I think it was, was Steve said something about, uh, Steve Tentwine said something about police records or something like that. Did uh, Andy? Did somebody, uh, 
he had said what he had said is he basically he had heard many different accounts but that still he had heard nothing that was substantiated yeah and still it was up in the air well this person definitely saw it i uh i i, I think this person is very reliable that 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 uh that that said this you know about actually seeing a copy of this here because they was in that position to be able to do it as an aside how did he uh compose himself that time in the plane at over rochester was did he seem uh, I mean, as long as you're talking about his response to uh possibility I would, of i would have this kind of look about him sometimes you know like he would just be looking out and he was looking you know you look at him and i was looking at like it was like endless space <laughs> Just like really, if I would go past Albert's house and I'd come out of his house and you would think that I had an eight-hour job in, in, in an incense factory. Oh, yeah. Albert burned so much incense in his house. When you open that door, you thought you would have to call the fire department. You thought it was a fire going on. There was so much incense. Or Albert burned a tremendous amount of smoke. And sometimes I'd go in there and sit with Albert and we wouldn't say anything for a few minutes. He'd say one word, but Albert would look. You sit there like we had to think a little bit if he burned some more incense, <laughs> you know. So sometimes Alba definitely was in his, his own private world, you know. Then he would say something. Then you had to say, well, what, what, what did he say? What was he thinking about? He'd say one statement. Then he had, he'd make you think about a lot of things. Uh, it almost sounds that, uh... I mean, from the, this introspective side of Albert Isla that you're talking about now, that almost seems incongruous with the tremendous amount of energy that uh, one yeah. hears Albert playing with. Uh, I mean, yeah. There can be no question that he had a lot of energy when he yeah. was playing. Yeah, Albert, when we played at Slugs, after the first set, Albert told me, man, he said, hey, man, maybe we better play a ballad the second set. I said, why? He said, man, I chewed my mouth, I chewed my reed, man. We played so hard, I chewed my reed. I said, no problem. I went and played fast the second set. And that whole night for five nights, we burned. We 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 burned. It was it was it was a challenge, and Albert was over there. He showed me his his reed was all split up, and he came back in. I said, "No, we don't play no battles. Let's just play." <laughs> he, he used a plastic reed, right? Um, I don't remember. I really don't remember. I'm not too sure. Well, let's uh, you know talk a little bit more about the music. I mean, uh, and we're on the subject. How did uh, he generally conduct himself on the bandstand? How did he lead you guys? How did you know? Uh, did he have a song list? Did you rehearse things? Did you know what was there usually a book at any one time of compositions that were frequently played? Well, you know, Albert had them kind of tunes. You know, you really didn't have to rehearse too much if he was a decent musician, you know. <laughs> they were so catchy, you know. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember. You, just, you know, it's like, you know, when you dig back that far, it's, I've, I've personally went through so many changes myself. Mm -hmm. And I gotta try to uh, remember who well, was what, on what the band, some of these bands. But what like, comes up? What comes through? I don't remember really rehearsing that much with Albert. I remember one rehearsal I did with Albert, but I don't really remember rehearsing. Now, whether he rehearsed with some of the other players, I don't know. But personally, myself, I don't remember ever really rehearsing with Albert. But I say like one time, and I think that was somebody in the band. Uh, what was it? Was it Michelle? What was his name? The Michelle Sampson. Sampson, yeah. yeah, Michelle Sampson. Uh, I uh. I really, uh, I remember that rehearsal with him, and uh, the bass, uh, bass player was busy playing guitar, uh, what's his name, Steve? Steve Timberlake. No, not Steve, what's the other one? Follow? Oh, uh, um, no. I know who you're talking about. <laughs> bass player, usually. 
Fallow. What's his name? Fallow or Fall, something? Fallwell. Fallwell. Yeah, yeah. I think well, that's what I heard about. I think he was in with one enough. time. <laughs> Fallwell was in out. Right? Yeah, yeah. I think I think on one occasion with him. But I really don't remember going through a whole series of rehearsals with him. You know, because everybody knew each other. So I knew Alan. Me and Alan, Alan had played. You know, so you really didn't have to do that kind of thing. Just hit. Yeah, and Albert had played with some of the musicians before. So my experience with him was... Hmm. When you played, did you feel like there was a strong connection between the, you and Albert and you and the band? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The times I was with the band, it was. Did, yeah. Did he... Uh, you had to fall in. You know, certain times you're in the band, you got to fall in, else you just keep quiet. <laughs> did he... Uh, did he change the approach with the uh, the audience? I mean, if there was a certain mood or playing in a club as opposed to a concert, did he? Oh, yes. John Coltrane's funeral. Oh, yes, he was. I was a guy on there, I think, was probably the most un... Uh, Richard Davis was so cool. Richard was cool. I, I think, I think, I think Albert and Don was more sensitive to the funeral, you know? Hey, yeah, hey, that's a heavy thing to do, you know? You're playing for a guy's funeral. And, uh, what Sending are you going to play? Off. What are you going to do here, you know? And, you know, all the musicians was there. I mean, it was uh, it just, look, just looking at Coltrane in a casket out in front was one thing. But then when you had all the musicians there, I mean, all the musicians came. And, you know, you don't, you don't usually play for all the musicians. And that's, that's just a vibe itself. You know, you got all them spirits that was in the house. And you looked around, you could see almost every musician you want to think of. So it was a, it was a, a kind of thing. So Albert was... Albert was, that was one of the more softer, uh, uh, you know, like really space. I mean, he was like flow things I've heard him do, you know? And I was trying to dig in and try to dig in because I wanted to feel some earth there for a second. I, I was in the heavens. I, I was floating. I was floating. And uh, he was very conscious of that. Oh, he was, Albert was extremely conscious of that. Very sensitive to it. I mean, he was entering into an area because if you listen to a lot of titles of his tunes, it was something that really, really was touching to him, you know? And so um, that was the time that I really seen a major change, but he did definitely, uh, you know, react to what the audience was about. We're speaking with drummer Milford Graves, who contributed to some of Albert Eiler's fine recordings, and uh, you're listening to Albert Eiler's birthday broadcast on WKCR-FM New York. My name's Mitch Goldman, here with Andy Rotman, and we're soon to uh, make way for Cliff Price, who'll be also here and uh, continuing with Milford and taking it in uh, some other special features, too. But uh, let's turn back for a moment to um, this album, Love Cry, and hear one of the pieces, or maybe a couple. Uh, the next thing we have up is Dancing Flowers and Bells. I wonder if you could uh, see if you can... Bring yourself back to the studio on that day and uh, tell me what you remember about that. Uh, I have to listen first. You know, oh, okay. Oh, man, you record this thing. I got to hear this. I got to hear this again myself. <laughs> Any particular, uh, besides what you told us about the, uh, well, there's the sound on the drums and the intensity in the mm -hmm. session that night. Um, Anything else about in particular? I know that, uh, well, I guess Carl Cobbs had been in the band even before you were, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. Carl was. Yeah, but, but Alan, we always hit it off. You know, I think, I think Alan myself, we, uh, Alan looked, I think Alan really, he, he, he really loved the session that day. And uh, that was the first time you had actually recorded with him. First time, first time. 
But I mean, basically, what what's happening here? I think I think everybody felt good. I think everybody felt good because the, the session was the feeling. Happy. The feeling was there. I think that's what happened there. I think the feeling really happened on this one here. Um. Okay. Well, let's check it out. Yeah, let's hear it. Tell us what you think. About it. I have to. I have to hear it again. Dancing flowers from Albert Eiler's Love Cry. That's uh, uh, the completion of side one of Albert Eiler's Love Cry. We heard dancing flowers, bells, and love flower. Love Cry features Donald Eiler on the trumpet, Carl Cobbs playing harpsichord, Alan Silva on the bass, and our guest of the last hour or so, Milford Graves, playing the drums. Um, did anything come to mind having uh, heard that? I, I haven't read those line of notes in years, uh, but uh, uh, some of the things that Albert said in there, I think it... Uh, kind of like sums up what I guess I was saying and that's in reference to I guess what he thought about me <laughs> as just playing rhythms from all over the world and some of the things that he wanted to deal with was this universal aspect and um, now that I really listen back again to the music uh, the, 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 the last few tunes I mean it was just it, it was something that you just can't you can't like just try to grab those notes. And now going back to that date, I, I, I see why people like, I mean, the musicians, everybody felt good on the date because now that I go back, I could see how like we were moving in areas. Like it was just so easy to move into, it wasn't a struggle. Like everything seemed like it moved just the way it was supposed to move. And everybody did what they were supposed to do <laughs> to add their particular part. And when someone said, oh, I didn't like what he played, you know, like this wasn't right and that wasn't right. And uh, I, I, that's what Albert was looking for. Because when I listen to Albert here, he's very comfortable. I can see he feels very comfortable there. And, and, and that's what I remember about that date, that uh, he appeared to be very comfortable, <laughs> extremely comfortable. And like he was, he, was able to, he was just able to lay back and just do what he wanted to do. And like the support was there for him. And uh, I, I felt as though there was a certain kind of rhythm that he wanted. And uh, that day, I also remember on that date because uh, he tonally made me play a certain way that I like to play. Tonally? Yeah, I was thinking more tonal. I was thinking much more tonal. So some people, if they listen close, they have to listen closely to make sure it's not some, the bass playing some of the drum of, of what I'm doing in there. Because of the tone thing, I'm not just using a regular, just traditional approach. And I thought on this particular date, that, uh, uh, and as it went along, I felt myself, you know, you just, much more melodic, you know, more pretty, you know, and uh, that's what was the big thing about this date. Well, that's great. I, I'm so happy that uh, we have the music still and uh, that you were able to come up and cast some light. I want to thank you, Milford Graves, for joining us and helping us I'd like us to put to... one more tag on there. Please, yeah. I, I think that this, Albert's, Al, this, this, this whole thing for Albert's birthday, I think this should be a lesson, and I think that one of the questions about what would Albert be doing now, I mean, he was 34 years old when he died. I think one of the things that we should pay attention to is that we tend to lose a lot of very strong people. And uh, we got people around now, and there will be people in the future. And we, we, we have to find out some way how to, to, to keep our people, <laughs> you know, do that something very strong that can, can contribute and not put people through an, an enormous amount of changes, whether Albert took his own life or someone else took his life, you know. And, but 
you know, we, we got to make sure that people who are put here on this planet can make sure that other people can have some kind of peace and harmony within themselves. Is that these people in some kind of way should be existing. I mean, really should be existing. And, and that's what, you know, the whole thing is. Because, like, if there wasn't a certain kind of commercialism that has set in, if the music in the 60s, you know, some people say it was chaos. But what is chaos? Chaos eventually leads to something positive. And it's not really chaos. I mean, nature does that. <laughs> nature has a way that, you know, if, if you're thinking about quantum physics, if it's, quantum physics is true, you know, and, and eventually it has to evolve into something positive, then the only thing that I, 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 I you know, I, I feel for, and I think all people that at this particular 20 years later should feel for, that, that during that time there was a creative, innovative approach to music that was taking place, taking place that would have been a continuous all the music that took place before that, that didn't develop on the whole. There's a few people, I try to keep doing it myself, but I'm just, you know, one of the few people, but on the whole, if all of that would have happened, if everybody would have stayed in contact, something else would have taken place other than music. I think it would have just been another kind of spirit force out here, material force and everything else. And that's what I, I hope that we can rectify for the future. Oh. Thanks for uh, bringing that. Okay. Thank you. And uh, Milford Graves, drummer and uh, colleague of Albert Eilers, and really bringing us another understanding of it. We thank you. All right. My name is Mitch Goldman, and uh, Andy Rotman and I have been very pleased to be able to contribute to this. And we're going to turn things over to Cliff Price, who's got some very more wonderful Albert Eiler recordings, starting off with witches and devils. That is the interview that Andy Rotman and I conducted with Milford Graves. July 13th, 1987 was the 51st anniversary, I think, of the birth of Albert Eiler. And Andy and I produced a 24-hour birthday broadcast. And Milford Graves came by and very patiently and generously, I thought, sat uh, and, um, that was the conversation. Andy, what you, neither you nor I had listened to this since thoughts, impressions, a few things. Um, one, it's, it's such a pleasure that Milford had been listening to the festival and in there is responding to Archie Shep, Steve Tintwise, other people that we had interviewed and is clearly kind of engaging. So it's nice to think of the broadcast also as a conversation, as opposed to simply a bunch of us kind of riffing, um, but that it had something more cohesive. Um, that's one. Again, it was really nice to hear that line that both of us remembered talking about Albert Eiler's thorax and just the kind of the physicality of him, not yeah. just being big in height, but kind of big in like girth. Yeah, like dimension, big, volume. And, literally. you know, that part of the spirit is just kind of the breath, the kind of the kind of the bodily air that he could bring to the playing. I found that just as I did when I heard it again, fascinating and mesmerizing. I thought the, you know, I had a vague recollection. I mean, I remembered that we had done the recording. I didn't really remember the content of it. I, I honestly, I remember 
if you'd asked me, I would have might have described Milford being somewhat flighty and kind of mystical. I don't know where I got that idea from. I'm hearing it with such different ears now. And the things that he said are so on topic, talking about Albert Eiler, talking about music, talking about living in this world today in 2021. I'm so impressed with his mind and his spirit and, and the fact that he made the effort. I mean, this was it was a significant cultural event for people who love this music at that time. I think there were not. We were talking about this a little bit while we were playing back and listening. There just were not opportunities to share in the music of Albert Eiler to study it or to talk about it. There, they just. I can't remember anything like that that existed. So, um, for those of us who were were dedicated to it. It was uh, it was definitely a moment. I think all those people, a lot of people who remembered him, of which there were quite a few around. It was this is 17 years after his passing. Not even. Um, I think they all kind of caught that wave with us. Milford definitely among them. I just remembered something that I completely forgot. Now I remember. Yeah. So I got. I can say this on air or not. I'm just going to say it now. It just there was something. So when I was doing this. Um, I was the kind of logistics person, the incredibly unglamorous job of making sure that everybody showed up on time and that people were there and that we had the recordings. So there was that mind of always something else in the back of my mind. But now I remember that someone had contacted us with a recording of Albert Eiler playing at John Coltrane's funeral, which at that time I had never heard. I didn't know it existed. And I can't remember who it is who dropped it off. Um, and we heard the recording and while we were playing it on air and guessing who it was, who was playing drums, that was when Milford called and Milford said, that's me on drums. Wow! And that's how we got Milford to come to the station. Wow. Because, uh, Milford was like, yeah, I'm on drums. And it was like, oh, will you come and talk about that? Whoa, really? All this feels like a blur because so much was happening and I was so overwhelmed um i mean it's mind-boggling enough for me at the moment to be listening to eiler playing at coltrane's funeral but then i'm talking with milford graves on the phone now how did you just authenticate that did you just remember or was there some evidence for that i'm sure you're right i remembered i had a vague memory of it but that i just wanted to check to make sure that milford graves really did play (laughs) that recording um but I, I think I remember that too. Who, who brought? I don't remember who brought the cassette by now. And again, this is one little bit of history. I just I don't remember it. Well, also um, I remembered that we pre-produced as much of the show as we could, and we did the interviews in advance. But that I remember that that particular one, we for whatever why would we not have been able to pre-record that one? That is exactly the reason. That totally makes sense. Um, I mean, it hadn't been planned. It just when Milford Graves calls you on the phone and you ask him, <laughs> do you want to show up? Then you drop everything else to schedule the time to talk with him. Um, but I think one of the things that makes the interview so interesting is that he wanted to speak with us as much as we wanted to speak with him. Well, that 
was one of the easiest interviews I think I've ever done. I don't know if I needed to even pose a question. He was ready to go. And almost pretty much everything that he said was right on point. I mean, he covered a lot of ground, but um, it was all fit under that larger umbrella. And, you know, you know how it is. You do interviews and sometimes it's pulling teeth or sometimes people just talk very broadly about kind of concepts or sometimes they're just talking about nitty gritty details. Milford Graves spoke in wonderful paragraphs, illustrated what he was describing. He had a command and memory of things. And so many little stories pop out. <laughs> Albert Eiler coming to his house in Brooklyn and stuffing a rag into his tenor saxophone. I mean, so the walls don't crumble. You know, it's just, it's that was really good. That was really, really good. I'm just uh, more impressed with Milford Graves than ever. I have to say the his ability to think about the kind of the specifics and the cultural specifics of, oh, they're not used to recording gongs in America. Fine in Japan. They just really don't know how to do it. So they want me to like kind of reduce the size to kind of to manage the intensity. But then also to be able to talk about the kind of the kind of the spirit, the kind of the emotional affective pleasure and everybody kind of communicating to be able to move from the technical to the spiritual back and forth. It's hard to find someone who can be so articulate about both. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was great. He was great. Well, um, I'm sorry he's gone. I'm sorry there won't be some more drop-ins from Milford Graves. Uh, Andy, anything else we want to leave the folks with? Thinking about Milford and his legacy, it's, I think for so many of us, when we think about jazz, we tend to think about individuals and individual wonderful players, not recognizing this, the collective that gives birth to something. And I loved when Milford talked about what it is that that community could do if it worked together. Yes. I find that a really powerful message of, you know, that musicians are creating something together. They are co-creating. And Milford was an extraordinary co-creator on the bandstand and also as a teacher. And it's an amazing legacy, and I hope we can do right by it. Yeah, especially coming out of this, what we've all been enduring together with COVID-19 has really atomized us in a very painful way and separated us from live music, which is what Deep Focus is all about. So when the opportunity comes, I know you're going to take advantage of it. I'm going to take advantage of it. And uh, I want to see everybody in the audience out there communing with the music and feeling it because that's the only thing that gives it any meaning it's deep focus andy rotman thank you so much for coming through and thanks for creating this opportunity for all of us we did that together how about that and uh hopefully this lives on in some form all right milford graves thank you for the music it's deep focus this has been a bonus Deep Focus with our program with Firon Akloff from July of 2019.